0: Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 35, Mary and Margaret. As Charles the Bold spent the final years of his life campaigning, two women became integral parts of Burgundian society and politics his daughter, Mary of Burgundy, and his wife, Margaret of York. Mary, whose mother, Isabella of Bourbon, died when she was only eight, is often portrayed as little more than a pawn in her father's machinations. When those machinations sent him to an icy demise, however, Mary, at only 19 years old, found herself thrust into the centre of the political upheavals which rocked the Burgundian territories, particularly the Low Countries, and especially Flanders. But Mary did not face this turmoil alone, because in 1468, her father had married Margaret of York, an English princess who directly linked the political tumult of England during the Wars of the Roses with that of Burgundy. These two, stepmother and stepdaughter, formed a particular bond which they would need to rely on after Charles's death in order to protect the Burgundian state from all the threats it faced. So, in this episode, we are going to rewind in time a little, and explore the lives, characters, connections, and actions of Mary of Burgundy and Margaret of York, before Charles the Bold's death. Mary of Burgundy was born the night before St. Valentine's Day, February 13th, 1457. Her father, Charles, was at this time still Count of Charolais, and her mother, Isabella of Bourbon, was one of 11 children born to Charles the Duke of Bourbon and Agnes of Burgundy. As we have explained many times in previous episodes, marriages on this level of European politics at this time were rather inbred, and this was no exception, with Isabella and Charles... Also being cousins, sharing John the Fearless as a grandfather. You gotta love keeping it in the family. You may recall that at the beginning of 1457, the relationship between Charles and Philip the Good was rocky. Just a month before Mary's birth, Duke Philip had chased Count Charles around the Ducal Palace in Brussels with a sword, angry with him for disobeying him in the matter of who to appoint to his household staff. This was also the time when the French Dauphin, Louis, was in exile at the Burgundian court, which would lay the foundations for the lifelong enmity between him and Charles. Unfortunately, there is a lack of information available about the early life of Mary. The writings which do exist are mostly concerned with the details of her birth and baptism, including accounts by Burgundian chroniclers George Chastelain and Eleanor of Poitiers. Remember that we must always take the writings of ducal courtiers and chroniclers with a grain of salt. Chastelaine tells us that at the moment before Mary's birth, the otherwise clear skies above the Kaldenberg Palace in Brussels were wrought by an immense thunderclap that, quote, was so violent that everyone believed the whole village must have been hit and set on fire, end quote. We can't say for sure since we weren't there. But this definitely sounds like a writer taking liberties to spice up a story, if you were to ask me. Charles was not present at the birth of his child, choosing instead to leave his wife shortly after labor started to go and hunt some deer in nearby woods. How very 15th century of him. In her description of Mary's birth, Eleanor of Poitiers writes one paragraph about the family tree of Mary's parents, one line mentioning that she was born in Brussels, one more saying that Duke Philip did not come to the birth before she launches into a detailed three-page description of the arrangements of the room, the colour of the canopies on the bed, the material which hung on the walls, and the gold, silverware, and furniture in the chamber. This tells you a little about the priorities of the contemporary writers. The only people actually nearby when Mary was born were her mother, for obvious reasons, her grandmother, Isabella of Portugal, and, perhaps surprisingly, the then Dauphin of France, Louis, who waited outside. When the newborn child was carried out to him, he asked that she be named Mary after his mother, Marie of Anjou, who was the aunt of the new-ish Queen of England, Margaret of Anjou, who we will come back to later on. Duke Philip apparently asked not to be disturbed unless his grandchild was a boy, which tells you a lot about his priorities. Despite the somewhat low-key reaction to her birth within the family, the celebrations in Brussels were much more in line with what you would expect for the arrival of the first child to the heir apparent of the realm. There were torches and celebratory fires lit and bells rang out across the city, Two weeks later, according to Chastelain, Mary's baptism was marked by scenes, quote, of such great magnificence that it had never before been seen for a girl, end quote. So that's progress, I guess? Again, hundreds of torches were lit across Brussels, two thirds of which were supplied by the town council, and the other third by Count Charles himself. Kaldenberg's church was richly decked out in green tapestries, cloths, torches, and candles a pavilion was set up, and a who's who of nobles and Brussels elite came to witness and take part in the baptism. One person who was conspicuously absent, however, was, again, Duke Philip. According to Chasselain, Philip couldn't be bothered attending because, quote, it was only for a girl, end quote. So, not so progressive. During the baptism, Isabella of Portugal doubled up and became Mary's godmother as well as being her grandmother while Louis, the Dauphin, was made her godfather. We know that Louis and Charles would, in time, become implacable enemies, but still, Louis was to be Mary's godfather presumably to try and gain Philip's approval. He was, at the time, busy seeking to restore relations between Burgundy and France. So from the moment of birth, Mary of Burgundy's life was embroiled in the complicated world of European politics, caught in the web of designs between Burgundy and France. Every other major decision made about Mary's life would also be politically influenced. This, in and of itself, was not unusual. Almost every child born into a powerful family was used in this way. If not, their only other alternatives for life were to be appointed to some kind of ecclesiastical position or sent off to a monastery slash nunnery. The problem for Mary, however, was that being a woman made the matters of her inheritance to the Burgundian lands much more complicated than if she had been born with male genitalia. We saw how Jacqueline of Bavaria struggled with this in the past. In some territories, women could inherit land from their fathers without any problems, but in others, particularly the areas which owed their allegiance to the King of France, Salic law determined that lands without a male heir could potentially be reclaimed by the crown. Her childhood would have been weighted with expectation, experienced in the court of a man who was convinced that he was chosen by God to be the preeminent prince in Europe. She was an only child, and there were no peers with whom Mary could exist equally. Yet she had no real independence, her life determined by her father and his decisions." During the first years of Mary's life, these decisions gravitated mostly around Charles's uneasy relationship with his own father, the Duke, which had arisen due to Charles's enmity with the powerful Croy family, which we covered in episode 28, Strained Reigns of a Waning Reign. Rather than staying at Kaldenberg in Brussels, or residing in Ghent, where the citizens expected a constant ducal presence, Charles, Isabella, and Mary moved away from the centres of power, and Mary spent her youngest years in Le Quesnoy in Hano, with both her mother and her father. Although there is no direct information about Mary's experiences there, it is likely that these were the most carefree years of her life. By the end of 1464, Charles had gotten back into his dad's good books, and was set to take over from the ailing old duke. Plans were set in motion for the young family to leave Le Quesnoy. Which I suppose can also be pronounced Le Kesnoy or Le Kesnoy, and instead reside at the Hoftenvalle Palace in Ghent, which can also be pronounced Ghent. Great preparations were made, the gardens were done, courts were repaved, a whole lot of renovations took place, and here's a random stat: 28 fireplaces in the residence were swept and cleaned. All the rooms underwent several treatments to make them as clean as possible for the family's arrival. But before they could move in, tragedy struck when Mary's mother, Isabella, died of tuberculosis while in Antwerp in September 1465. She was just 31 years old. You may recall that when she died, Charles was deeply involved in negotiations with Louis XI, which would lead to the Treaty of Conflans, and he was, apparently, largely unaffected by his wife's death. He didn't even attend her funeral. That might have been a rational decision for the singularly focused Charles, but let's spare a thought for the eight-year-old Mary, whose family packed up their house and moved across the country, and then she lost her mother, and then must have been alone at the funeral without her father there to comfort her. And then she was sent to live in Ghent anyway, but now under the care of a woman called Philippot de roche She was actually the half-sister of Duke Philip, being one of the many bastard children of John the Fearless, and she acted as a kind of nurse slash governess for Mary for the next couple of years. Charles had begun to take a firmer grasp on the Burgundian strings of power by this stage, and although he was in Ghent quite often between 1465 and sixty seven, he was obliged to follow the course of his predecessors and constantly move his court around his domains in order to rule them with any real efficacy. Mary, however, stayed mostly in Ghent from then on, residing at the Hoftenwala Palace. Mary was ten years old when Philip the Good died and Charles officially took over as Duke of Burgundy. You'll no doubt remember that immediately upon his ascension, Charles made an ill-timed, joyous entry into Ghent, after which the people of Ghent gave him their customary gift of a spontaneous popular uprising against him. After being talked down by a rabble on the market square, Charles was forced to flee Ghent with his treasure chest and young daughter in tow. We can only speculate about what effect this event might have had on the young Mary, and whether it informed any opinions she held about the rights of citizens or decisions which she would later make in adulthood. What we can say for certain, however is that fleeing for her life from a rabble of angry Ghentanars must have made a great impression on her, and also contrasted greatly with the experience Charles had had as a child when he heard the stories of how his father had been treated like the second coming of Jesus during Duke Philip's joyous entry into Bruges in December 1440. Regardless of what Mary might have felt about Ghent and its burghers. Until she became duchess in her own right, she spent the majority of her adolescence in that town, some years not even leaving the city at all. This too has been looked at mainly as an act of political necessity decided upon by Charles. He knew firsthand how restless the important city could be. He either kept Mary there to assuage the sensibilities of Gentinars and to show them that he loved them so dearly that he entrusted his only heir to grow up within their walls, or to remind them that he very much had his eye on them. Most likely is that his intentions were to communicate a little bit of both. In 1468, Mary's nurse, Philippot de Rochebaron, died, and the duty of her educational instruction and general welfare passed between a few different women, before Jeanne de Camines, the Lady of Halavagne, took up the role which she would occupy until the end of Mary's life, If that name rings familiar to you, it's because she was the cousin of everyone's favorite booted head, Philip de Comines, the Burgundian-come-French court chronicler. Otherwise, Mary's companionship came in the form of her aunt, her late mother's sister, Catherine of Bourbon, who was 17 years older than her, but who became one of Mary's ladies-in-waiting. Just to further exemplify the complicated nature of these high-end relationships, Catherine of Bourbon was also the wife of Adolphe, the young Duke of Helders, who Charles imprisoned in Hesden. Another woman responsible for educating Mary was another aunt, one of Philip's many illegitimate children, Anne of Burgundy, who would also later marry a different Adolf. this one the Lord of Ravenstein. In their essay, Maria van Burgondier in Hoftenwalle, historians Jella Hamers and Daniel Lefoy. Make the point that, although the women in the Burgundian court might not have been the ones in the limelight, making the military decisions and giving commands, they were still able to play an important part behind the scenes. Being so close to the motherless Mary, whose father was mostly absent, gave these women the opportunity to guide her education, to shape her opinions and teach her how to react, think and behave. It's a pretty powerful position when you consider that Mary was the sole heiress to these extensive Burgundian realms. As to what Mary was like as a person at this stage, it is difficult to say. She was apparently good at languages and able to speak Dutch and French, as well as later learning English and German. Throughout her life, she had a great affection towards animals. She had a menagerie of them to entertain her, which included birds, monkeys, dogs, and even a giraffe, which must have been very cold in the Low Countries whilst being able to see very far into the distance. She was also a great fan of hunting, which probably gave her something to bond with her father over, especially given he had missed her birth to go hunting. Above all though, Mary loved horse riding and falconry, and in many pictures of her you will see her with a falcon on a horse or both, as appear in her personal seal. As Charles became embroiled in the lofty political and territorial ambitions that we have explored over the previous episodes, Mary remained in Ghent with her human and animal entourage. But while she was being groomed to become a suitable bride for whichever man her father eventually chose to succeed him, Charles also needed to find himself a wife. This presented him with an opportunity to not only strengthen a particular alliance, but to also find someone who could really show Mary how to be a duchess. And so it was that when she was 11 years old, yet another political decision made by her father brought one of the most influential people Mary would ever meet into her life. And this was Margaret of York. In this podcast, we have frequently taken note that the prevailing power structures of the Low Countries were impacted by the politics happening within and between the large neighbours that surrounded them. The people in power in France and the German Empire could also not disregard whoever was in charge of the Low Countries and other territories that lay between them all. This was also the case with England, which although more insular due to its island nature, often interacted with Europe via the gateway of the Low Countries. As historian Lyfia Fisser Fuchs wrote of the relationship between England and the Low Countries quote, Since the earliest times, conquering princes, marriageable princesses, invaders, refugees, traders, pirates, missionaries, mercenaries, ambassadors, spies, scholars, and craftsmen had crossed the narrow seas, the interflow only increasing or diminishing as the needs of the moment especially the economic and sometimes the whimsical needs of the lords on one or either side of the sea dictated, End quote. We have steadfastly been avoiding dipping our toes into the mess which is English politics during this period, or ever, but alas, we can avoid it no longer. We do this only because we want to explore how the Low Countries became tangentially involved in the Wars of the Roses, and the role which Margaret of York, in particular, played in it all. Once again, like always, let's remember that this is the History of the Netherlands podcast, not the History of England podcast, nor the Wars of the Roses podcast, so this is going to be done as quickly as possible, and will be oversimplified, but, in a nutshell... Towards the end of the Hundred Years' War, as the French were regaining their strength, fixing their relationship with Burgundy and building up their armies and artillery, the English were desperately trying to hang on to the territories they had won on the continent, such as Normandy and Gascony. English King Henry VI was only one year old when he got the crown, meaning that regents ruled in his stead during the early parts of his reign. So from a young age, Henry was surrounded by powerful nobles, each with their own strong opinions about what needed to be done regarding France. Henry himself was apparently a shy and quiet young man, who was also mentally unstable, you might remember, and prone to bouts of insanity. So the advisors around him were able to take advantage of this, tending to make the most important decisions themselves. One such man was William de la Pole, who led a faction which dominated the young English king throughout the 1440s. He tried his best to use diplomacy to solve the conflict in France by arranging for Henry to marry Margaret of Anjou. But the terms of this match resulted in England giving up territories in France, including Anjou and Maine. De la Pole also had the king's uncle, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, former husband of our old mate... Jacqueline of Bavaria arrested for treason after Humphrey mysteriously died in custody William de la Pole was blamed for his death and for all of this he became increasingly unpopular. but he did earn himself the title of Duke of Suffolk and was now the central influencing figure over the king so that was something when the war with France restarted and the English completely lost Normandy in early 1450, There was a whole bunch of finger pointing and blame games started amongst the nobility in England. Opposing factions assembled and seeds of a rebellion against the crown began to germinate. William de la Pole was accused of treason, arrested, and chucked in the Tower of London. But before he could be put on trial by the Parliament, the King stepped in and chose to instead banish him from England, which is a fantastic punishment and one which I'm sure many people in England wish could be brought back. On his expulsion across the Channel, however, the Duke of Suffolk was captured by people who thought that banishment wasn't quite a sufficient enough punishment, and he was promptly beheaded. Another of the nobles who had been at the centre of English power was Richard, Duke of York. He was of the overarching Plantagenet line and had his own claim to the line of royal succession, being both a great-grandson and a great-great-great-grandson of Edward III, the English king, who, if you cast your mind way back, had been crowned king of France by Jacob van Artefelder in Ghent, way back at the beginning of this whole Anglo-French conflict. Hold up, I can hear you asking. How was this guy simultaneously the great-grandson and the great-great-great-grandson of somebody? Well, the answer, dear listeners, is inbreeding. Does it sound better if we say that he was therefore also his own second cousin? Great second cousin? Anyway, Richard had held an esteemed role as the Lieutenant of France, but his time away from England led to him becoming isolated from an English court increasingly under the influence of the new Queen, Margaret of Anjou, and her loyalists. She and Henry continued to be childless, however, leading to rumblings about succession. This was in stark contrast to Richard of York's own hefty brood, six at this point, but up to twelve children he produced in his entire life, and they would come into line for succession should the king not produce an heir of his own. One of this hefty hall of children was he and his wife's third daughter, Margaret of York. She had actually been named after Margaret of Anjou, the Queen. There was, however, little love lost between them all. It was in Margaret of Anjou's interest to keep Richard and his family firmly on the outer, especially while there was still no clear heir to the throne. He was made the Lieutenant of Ireland in 1447, which put him even further away from the Central Court. When the crisis hit England that saw them losing so much territory in France, He might have expected to be called upon to return properly into the fold to help deal with this emergency, but this did not occur. Instead, he saw his reputation and esteem dwindling even further. There is a lot of mystery about what role Richard exactly played in the swell of rebellion, but in 1452, he led an army of 4,000 from Ireland to England, intent on defending his honour and taking his rightful role at court. The next year, the king had a complete mental breakdown, and Margaret of Anjou unsuccessfully attempted to reign in his place, but Richard was able to establish himself on the Regency Council. Despite great opposition from some very powerful people, Richard became protector of the realm. When the king's mental state recovered in 1455, the infighting among these nobles re-erupted into what we call the Wars of the Roses. Like I said, this telling is all ridiculously oversimplified, and you should definitely read Shakespeare to get a much more poetic, if inaccurate, version of it all. The too-long-didn't-read version is that Richard, Duke of York, and his clan took on King Henry VI and his Lancastrian supporters. As all this began to unravel in England, the various courts on the continent adjusted their alliances and allegiances accordingly. For simplicity's sake... Relevant to the Low Countries, there was somewhat of a balance between four hubs of power, which were the French king's royal court, the Burgundian duke's court, and the respective courts of their sons. This is the period when the French king Charles VII and his son, the future Louis XI, were pitted against each other, and in Burgundy, Duke Philip and his son were not really talking to each other either. The new English queen, Margaret of Anjou, was the French king Charles VII's niece, so he remained in favour of the Lancaster royals, while Louis, you may recall, consistently stationed himself in whatever camp was the opposite to his father's policy, so he was more favourable to York. Duke Philip the Good, at this stage, eagerly endearing himself to the exiled Dauphin resident in his lands, had also earned the enmity of... Of the Lancastrian king Henry VI when he had revoked the Anglo-Burgundian alliance in the Treaty of Arras in 1435. His support was therefore behind the Yorkist challenges, while his son Charles, from whom he was currently estranged and whose mother was a Lancastrian, positioned himself accordingly in the Lancaster camp. You got that? In 1459, Margaret of York was 13 years old and settled at Croxby House in London, alongside her two younger brothers, George and Richard. Their father had built up a strong base in Ireland, from which he continued his political struggles. Meanwhile, their mother and older brothers were based in Ludlow, west of Birmingham. Ludlow was attacked by Lancastrian forces late in the year, and with their victory came a proclamation of attainder against a bunch of pro-Yorkist dukes, by which they were stripped of their lands and titles, as well as the right to passed these on to their offspring. Richard of York was one of these who suffered a tinder, and it left him with no option but to go all in on his claim to the throne, supporting him were numerous disheartened earls who were biding their time to invade England and regain their lands. One of these was Richard's oldest son, Edward, the Earl of March, who was 18, built like a brick outhouse, and already quite experienced in battle. Edward led a Yorkist army on the offensive, took London, and managed to capture King Henry VI. Richard then went about pushing for himself to be crowned, but received surprisingly little support from the clergy or even his sons, and had to make do with being a regent in possession of a king. He managed to get the Act of Accord signed, which named him as the heir to Henry VI, and also disinherited the son Henry had now had with Margaret of Anjou, Edward. So, from this, Richard was pretty much in control of England when he made his way to the Castle of Sandal in late 1460, but unfortunately for him, the Lancastrians were by no means defeated and less than willing to accept the Act of Accord. Richard found himself for all intents and purposes, holed up there and surrounded by enemy forces. A foray from there brought spectacular results at the Battle of Wakefield, when both Richard and one of his sons, Edmund, were brutally killed. Margaret is thought to have been with the rest of her family at Baynard's Castle in London when this tragic news came through in the first week of January. The family's prospects now teetered on a knife's edge. Margaret's mother, Cecily must have had a million thoughts running through the grief in her mind about how to protect her remaining children, but also to ensure the legacy of what her and her late husband had worked so hard for. She knew that the Lancastrians would take any advantage they could to rid themselves of Yorkist claimants to the throne, so sent her two youngest sons, George and Richard, to safety in Utrecht. By the way, this particular Richard will become one pretty famous King Dick. It will much later be written that on the day of his eventual death, he sought to trade a kingdom for a horse. These two young, exiled princes of York stayed in Utrecht under the tutelage of David of Burgundy, Bishop of Utrecht, that puppet bishop bastard son of Philip the Good, until it was safe for them to return to England. Cecily's quick-thinking pragmatism showed a blueprint of how a duchess might best act in the face of personal trauma and grief, as historian Christine Waitman wrote, quote, "...Cecily acted swiftly, exhibiting calmness in the face of a serious crisis which Margaret would later emulate." End quote. About five months passed following the deaths of Richard and Edmund, during which the Yorkers had control of London and other important chunks of the country while the Northern Lancastrian forces behind Margaret of Anjou and her young, disinherited son were rallying together, ready to hit back at London. The late Duke of York's son, Edward, Earl of March, responded to his father's death with fierce brutality, attacking royal forces at Mortimer's Cross in early February. This resulted in the capture and execution of Henry VI's stepfather, and signaled a new ruthlessness in Edward's intentions but it did not mean a decisive victory for the Yorkers' clan. Another key player in England was the Duke of Warwick, Richard Neville. His shifting allegiance from Lancaster to York had been one of the major turning points in the brewing conflict so far. In early 1461, he was in personal possession of the King and set up a north-facing defence of London in the latter half of February, which was routed in an ambush by the Queen's men. The Lancastrian army somehow knew the exact position and formation of Warwick's, suggesting that there was a serious leak in his ranks. During the battle, the Lancastrians were able to recapture the king and put themselves in a position to march onto London. For some reason though, Margaret of Anjou allowed herself to be convinced not to bring a northern army into the capital, hesitating long enough to lose her chance. Edward, the 18-year-old Earl of March, marched to London to meet up with the Duke of Warwick, whose eminence and also support for Edward was enough to feed a groundswell of popular approval that he be named King Edward IV, which happened in March. In case you're getting a bit lost on our meandering wander in non-Dutch history, here is the same Edward IV who Charles the Bold would some 15 years later strived to have also crowned the King of France, in his abortive attempt to revive the Hundred Years' War, as we covered in episode 33, No More Mr. Nice Guy. Edward was still young and vigorous at this stage, and he quickly marched off to try and finish the Civil War and assert himself as king. The resulting Battle of Towton in late March is often cited as the largest and bloodiest to ever take place in England. It is thought that between 50 and 75,000 troops were involved. After the battle, Edward reported that nearly 30,000 troops had perished. It was a decisive Yorkist victory, which left the deposed and sometimes mentally unstable King Henry VI, his embittered wife Margaret of Anjou, and their young son and now disinherited heir, Edward of Westminster, to flee England to Scotland before she made her way to France, continuing to push their case to regain control of the crown. So, what does all of this have to do with our story? Well, the young Margaret of York, who turned 15 just a few months after her brother became king, was now a royal princess. As for her younger brothers, Richard and George, who had been sheltered in Utrecht, they were brought to Bruges, where the Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good, hosted them at his court. Philip until now had only given tacit support to the cause of York, providing indirect succour to the young Yorkists. The boys represented important political capital, and his keeping them in the bishopric of Utrecht with his bastard son was a clever way of keeping them under his control without technically holding them in his lands. Philip had been hedging his bets, until the results at the Battle of Towton were known. Now that it was clear who had come out on top... Philip did his typical thing and had the boys brought to him from Utrecht. He laid out a lavish banquet for them, deliberately leaving an impression on the young princes of how spectacular the Burgundian court was. After at least a week in Bruges, when everyone was certain that their older brother Edward was definitely to be crowned, they returned to England and had lands, honors, and titles heaped upon them, becoming George, Duke of Clarence, and Richard, Duke of Gloucester, respectively. From here on, we will refer to them as such. Now there was another link by which power brokers in Burgundy could communicate in a direction close to the English throne. The two youngsters, upon their return, were put up in Greenwich with Margaret, and would have had a few stories to tell their sister of the lands across the Channel, which unbeknownst to her, she would later come to rule. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. In fact, let's do the opposite and take an ad break. We'll be back on the other side. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world, At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous, and not so famous, adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen, we'd love to have you. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the. I oh know this is about English history. Welcome back to the Wars of the Roses podcast. When her brother became king, Margaret of York was almost 15 years old, which by the standards of the day was more than old enough for marriage. For whatever reasons, however, a suitable groom was not found for her for another seven years, meaning she had an extended, first hand, and relatively mature experience observing how a ruling court functioned. Her mother was a big influence on her, not only in how she had reacted to shore up her family's fortunes immediately following the murder of her husband, but also in how she set about her administrative and business duties in the years after. Like her mother, Margaret was extremely devout on both public and personal fronts. She learned that rigid observance of religious dates and celebrations by rulers were the mark of a properly functioning realm. Her piety would likewise hold her in good stead for rule over the societies of the Burgundian Low Countries, which, while diverse in so many respects, ubiquitously held the trait of religious devotion in very high esteem. It would also hold her in good stead with the man who would eventually become her husband, the extremely serious and pious Charles the Bold. Lastly, it has also been argued that Margaret and her mother, both fitted a trope of high noble women of this period, for whom religion was a central feature of life, and one which girded them against the traumas they had to endure because of the frequent violence that the males of their society engaged in. That's probably a little bit too reductive and dismissive of Margaret as an individual, but it's still informative of the type of culture in which Margaret was brought up. One example of Margaret's individualism was in her love of literature, of manuscripts and books, which would account for her greatest personal expenses over the course of her life. It does not seem that this was something that she inherited from her parents, neither of whom were renowned for commissioning written works. In her mother's case, the only exception was religious works, which she encouraged Margaret to do much reading of. In her late father's case, he only had a prayer book a couple of histories, and an English translation of a poem about a Roman politician and general called Stilicho. Margaret, on the other hand, was extremely bookish, and in this regard her world would open up when she became the Duchess of Burgundy, given how extensive a collection had been garnered under the keenly cultural and literate eyes of the Burgundian dukes, and was readily available for her perusal and enjoyment. In 1464, another influential woman came into Margaret's life when her brother, King Edward IV, married Elizabeth Woodville. We are not going to go into the whole Woodville family, who were, and still are, rather controversial. Their heritage included some highborn people, from the Low Countries no less, but also some lesser-ranked bloodlines, her father having been a mere knight before being elevated to lordship. Some people saw them as too low born to be bearing royal titles, and this included Margaret's mother, Cecily, who did not even attend the new Queen's coronation. Nonetheless, at that same coronation, Margaret was not only present, but sat at Elizabeth's left hand as a defined member of the inner circle. Elizabeth Woodville took on the job of finding a suitable match for Margaret with the first serious proposal coming from a contender for the throne of Aragon, called Don Pedro, in 1465. Negotiations proceeded on a quite positive note, until an insurmountable obstacle to the deal appeared, in the form of Don Pedro's death the following year. The shifting nature of European politics, however, suited the agility of the English court at this time. In late 1465, another proposal had emerged with far more enticing prospects. It was from no less than one of the three most powerful princes of Western Europe, Charles the Bold. He had only a daughter as heir to his wealthy realm, and was looking for a wife who could give him a son. Margaret, a royal princess, coming from that hefty brood, of which seven out of twelve had grown to maturity, seemed the ideal candidate. There was a great effort by the French king, however, Louis XI., to disrupt the negotiations and get Margaret instead married to a French prince. The Duke of Warwick, who had been so important in putting Edward IV on the throne, was also secretly now plotting to remove him and had shifted to a pro-French position, courting and being courted by Louis XI. Warwick was steadfastly against the prospect of an Anglo-Burgundian marriage alliance. He refused to contribute to Margaret's dowry and failed to attend her formal acceptance of the proposal. Despite all their best efforts, however, the Duke of Warwick and King of France were unable to prevent the conclusion of negotiations and stop Margaret from embarking for the Low Countries in June 1468. She was not the first woman to board a ship in her homeland and set sail for a place called Slaus to become the Duchess of Burgundy. Her soon-to-be mother-in-law, Isabella of Portugal had endured torrid seas and weather on her delayed and extended bridal trip from Portugal to the Low Countries. Margaret only needed to put up with the threat of attacks by French ships and pirates, part of a last-ditch effort from Louis XI to stop her from getting there. On board with her was a fantastic collection of wealth, much of it belonging to the important people who were escorting her towards her future. But except for one report of a ship that stole some silks. The journey turned out to be a rather uneventful one and they arrived in Slaus in the early evening of the 25th of June, 1468. Margaret and her entourage disembarked and amidst fanfare and following a greeting party of the Duke's representatives, she made her way to designated accommodations along specially carpeted streets lit by torches held by locals in their doorways welcoming her. She deliberately wore a burgundy crimson and black trimmed dress, specific colours that paid direct respect to the realm she was about to marry into. It was evident from the very beginning that she was very politically astute and or had very good guidance and counsel. The next day, Margaret of York met Mary of Burgundy, who was only 11 years her junior, for the first time alongside her grandmother Isabella of Portugal. Mary and Margaret's lives would become inextricably intertwined from here on. There is no record which recounts the great details of this meeting, which lasted around three hours, but all of them were aware that this union was directly connected to the current events and diplomatic relationships between the power networks of England, Burgundy, and France. Isabella, being the granddaughter of the Duke of Lancaster, John of Gaunt had long pushed for stronger connections with England, regardless of which faction was in power. Meeting her new daughter-in-law, she must have felt some satisfaction at bearing witness to such an historic connection being forged. Margaret's wedding to Charles was a spectacular affair, which we only touched upon briefly in episode 33. Besides their rather intimate religious bonding in a quiet house in Slough's there were weeks of celebrations, from Slaus to Bruges, and then on to other towns and cities in Flanders and beyond. For years, every time Margaret would enter a town, they would seek to outdo the joyous entry she had received at the towns before. But it is difficult to imagine that any matched the splendour of the wedding. Tournaments, feasts, church programs, and more, occupied the retinues of both parties, while the scale of celebrations must have been impressive no less to the young Mary. Burgundian lavishness, after all, was famously spectacular. Lavishness, however, contrasted greatly with the image that Margaret had learned to fashion for herself. From the beginning of her time in the Low Countries, she showed an ability to project the perception of a serious, devout, and dignified lady. She had great commitment to her new role, Putting this on full display when she first entered the preeminent town of Bruges, whose citizens witnessed the arrival of a golden litter drawn by two white horses draped in Burgundian crimson cloth. The new Duchess was dressed to match in white gold and crimson. It would have been fairy tale stuff if not for the inclement weather, the kind low country folk often bemoan wind and sweeping sheets of rain. But none of this discouraged her nor was used as an excuse to neglect her duties. Immediately after the elongated wedding celebrations, Margaret set off on a tour through Flanders to Brabant with Mary by her side, where she was received with even more honour and celebration. This was no honeymoon, however, since Charles was only around intermittently, busy with his stately affairs like negotiating the Treaty of Peron with Louis XI to once more regain the towns of the Somme. While Charles visited Margaret somewhat regularly during their first four years of marriage, it was rarely for extended periods. The longest they ever spent together was 145 days. When after some time it became fairly clear that they were not going to reproduce, he spent considerably less time with her. In total, they spent around one year together during their first seven years of marriage, and she did not see him at all after 1475, because, you know... He had to go and make a king of himself by fighting everybody in the Rhineland. There is no evidence that suggests Charles was unhappy with Margaret. He was just that kind of guy who did not see much value in women beyond their ability to make babies. He had grown up with a father who basically slept with and impregnated anybody he could, and it has been postulated that his disdain for such behaviour contributed to a certain level of distrust in women, and disbelief that they could be participants in the kind of activities that mattered, like military expansion and conquest. Strangely though, this conflicts with what we know of the woman who herself bore him, the intelligent and capable Isabella of Portugal. Anyway, the point is that Margaret's marriage to Charles meant first trying to produce him an heir, and then coming to terms with how the Begunnian state functioned and what her role in it was to be. She had to make administrative and political connections and earn the trust of her new subjects, all while teaching young Mary how to be a Duchess in her own right. Speaking of Isabella of Portugal, she now fully withdrew from the important ducal role she had played for years, especially in diplomacy and nurturing the connections towards England and Iberia. Clearly, she was convinced of Margaret's ability to step into her shoes, and Margaret showed due reverence to her visiting her several times yearly, and writing to keep her informed on important matters, especially as regarded what was going on in England. This was before Isabella of Portugal passed away in 1471, at the ripe old age of 71. In 1470, another wave of violence came over England as the civil conflict once more surged, this time dividing the York faction. Edward IV's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville, as well as his pro-Burgundian diplomacy, had caused a lot of angst among others close to the crown, such as his former ally, the Duke of Warwick, Richard Neville. Edward knew how crucial Neville's support was, and in early 1469, he even gave Neville the honour of representing him in Burgundy, to exchange with Charles' membership in each other's fancy heraldic orders, the Order of the Garter on the English side, and the Order of the Golden Fleece, on the Burgundian side. But despite this honour, the Duke of Warwick, Richard Neville, was not to be won over. To keep a long story short, his clan, the Neville clan, and other high nobles were put off by some of the king's actions, leading them to foment rebellion. Included in this was George, Duke of Clarence, one of the two younger brothers of the king who had spent time in Utrecht. Now 18 and keen for his own star to start shining, he felt shunned in his own marriage prospects in favour of the Woodville family, who seemed to be getting all the best deals, and when Edward IV refused to let him marry the daughter of Richard Neville, the Duke of Warwick, Clarence defied him, married her anyway, and joined the rebellion. The other younger brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, remained loyal to Edward. This internal conflict was exploited by Louis XI, of course, who convinced Warwick to come to terms with the exiled queen, Margaret of Anjou. After Warwick did this, he measured the unpopularity of Edward IV at home, and decided that the situation was ripe for him to now bring another invading force to England, and depose the king he had earlier supported. All this in order to take the madness-prone Henry VI out of imprisonment in the Tower of London, where he had been languishing since having been captured some time before, and to restore the old king, who he had previously helped depose. Make up your mind, Warwick. By the summer of 1469, Warwick and George of Clarence, the king and Margaret's treacherous brother, invaded England, and in battle in July, they managed to capture Edward IV, who was promptly imprisoned himself. England was now in the odd situation of having two kings, both of whom were locked up. Margaret, of course, was intimately connected to the quarrel between her brothers, but she was now the Duchess of Burgundy, and knew that her responsibilities in this role superseded any affiliation other than her marriage to Charles. The Duke of Burgundy was trying to sustain the gains he had made against the French king, and it was in his best interest to prevent any sort of alliance between the French and English thrones, which would be the case if Louis XI succeeded in helping to restore the Lancastrian Henry VI. Before this could happen, Charles made it clear to the commercial sector of London that their trade security with Flanders depended on their continued support of Edward IV, the Yorkists. The English capital city took this extremely seriously, which put pressure enough on Warwick to make him hold his hand a while yet. He had little choice but to release Edward, allow him back to London and manufacture a PR exercise where all of Edward, Warwick, and Clarence publicly reconciled. This, however, was short-lived, when Edward soon after made his daughter his heir, deliberately overlooking Clarence, his brother, in favour of the young princess. Despite many attempts to find peace terms between the two, by the spring of 1470, another rebellion had broken out, and civil war was well and truly on the cards. Margaret was heavily involved, shooting off letters to all of her feuding brothers, but maintained her husband's position. When the Duke of Warwick captured some merchant ships from the Low Countries, he took them to France and found safe harbour there. This was a violation of the recently signed Treaty of Peron between Charles and Louis XI. Chastelaine tells us that in response to this, Charles strangely invoked his Iberian heritage and declared for Louis's benefit that, quote, among us Portuguese, it is a custom that when those we had regarded as friends make peace with our enemies, we consign them to hell. End quote. So it looked like the quarrel in England was going to reignite the war between France and Burgundy. Louis, however, had a lot of enemies beyond just Charles and was dealing with too many other issues at this moment to afford doing more than just provoking Burgundy. The troubles continued into the summer. Although Edward IV did not take it as seriously as perhaps he should have, according to Waitman, again throughout the summer of 1470, the court in Burgundy appeared to be more concerned about the situation in England than Edward was himself. Charles persistently warned Edward that the invasion was coming, but still, Eddie was ill prepared for it when it did happen. By September, the combined French, Warwick, Clarence, Lancaster force had landed in Devon, and within a few weeks, Edward, together with his non-treasonous brother, Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, and about 1,500 loyalists, were forced to flee. In October, Henry VI was restored to the throne, and everybody lived happily ever after. Huh, Getting they didn't. Edward, Richard, and the other Yorkists in exile followed the traditional course of exiled English folk and sought refuge in the Low Countries. It wasn't the easiest crossing, however, given both storms and enemy ships harried their fleet throughout. Richard made landfall in Zeeland, where reports of accounts from the towns of Middleburg and Vierter showed that he borrowed money there, including, quote, three pounds, two shillings, and three pennies, end quote, from the Lord of Balcom, the bailiff of Vierter. The deposed King Edward seems to have landed on Tessel, with between 300 and 400 men, which might have been nice had it not been so late in the year. At least there would have been fewer German tourists at that time. They were taken to Alkmaar, where they were greeted by Lord Louis of Röthäuser, who was Charles' governor in Holland. He then took them on a lovely little tour of Holland, visiting Egmont, Haarlem, Nordwijk and Leiden, before going to the Hague where they stayed for months and were most likely joined by Richard. It's amazing to think of this royal entourage just going on a little tour around Holland. Edward's months with Hruthuyser made a strong impression on him, as he became impressed with the luxury of the Burgundian courts. Hruthuyser's library, which was famous throughout the continent, particularly influenced him and was the inspiration for him to start a royal library if he ever took power again. This library, by the way, was also later purchased by the French king Louis XII, becoming the basis of the future French royal library. As for the Duke and Duchess of Burgundy, Charles was less than happy with having all of these exiled English nobles in his lands. Edward IV had become a liability, and even though Margaret corresponded privately with him, the ducal pair remained publicly distant, keeping the party of exiles in the north, away from their own court, not visiting them, and publicly congratulating their enemy, Henry VI. This conciliatory missive to the Lancastrians was a slight on Edward IV, and it did not pass him by unnoticed. It is interesting to think about whether Edward's later backflip, when he chose not to invade France with Charles as they had planned, which we went into in episode 34, might have been influenced by this perceived lack of support that he got from his brother-in-law, during this exile. The success in bringing the Lancastrian king, Henry VI, back to the throne had improved Anglo-French relations, giving Louis the courage to once again push for war against Burgundy, in defiance of the Treaty of Peron. As is the way with internecine relations between the three domains, this then impelled Charles to change his approach to the exiles in The Hague, and he allowed Margaret to finally invite them to Bruges. If he was to keep France at bay, Charles needed to get Eddy back onto the throne of England. Over the turn of the year, Margaret became heavily involved in nurturing the alliance between her brothers, Edward and Richard, and her husband, as plans were made for an invasion fleet of their own. She met frequently with both Edward and Richard, and petitioned the cities of the Burgundian territories to fork out cash, men, and ships for the endeavour. They established a propaganda campaign, trying to pit Charles as a heroic redeemer of England. But in many circles, the idea of another successful coup of England seemed a bit too far-fetched. A great quote came from one of the Milanese ambassadors, who thought that Edward would find it, quote, difficult to leave by the door and return by the window, end quote. Charles lent him £20,000, somewhere between one and 2,000 troops, and four big ships from Zeeland with which to sail back to try and reclaim his throne. On their part, Louis XI and the Duke of Warwick, Richard Neville, were in correspondence with each other, and by February 1471 had agreed to invade Burgundy together. In Zeeland, people became so concerned about this possibility that in the town of Vida, a huge wall and gate were built called the Varvags of Perot. Although that wall is long gone, a street in that town still bears the name Varvakesstrat Strat, for that reason. But the invasion by Warwick, Varvake, never ended up happening. A major factor in this whole situation was Edward's treacherous brother, the Duke of Clarence, George, who had jumped into bed with the Lancasters. Apparently he had started to regret this decision, which had pushed him back on the line of succession. Other members of his family, like his mother Cecily, urged him to once more switch allegiances, but it was Margaret, whose entreaties had the most impact. By the time Edward's invasion fleet departed Zeeland from Flissinger in March 1471, George had taken his sister's advice and decided to come back into the fold of his Yorkist clan. Edward and his army landed in Hull in mid-March, And within two months, and after a few major battles, Warwick was dead, Henry VI was dead, and his son and heir, Edward of Westminster, was also dead. So after enjoying a roughly six-month holiday in the Low Countries, and with the help of Margaret and Charles, Edward was once again in London, and once again King of England. It was also around this time that Margaret of York wrote her way into history by commissioning the first book to ever be printed in the English language. In around 1441, a young Englishman by the name of William Caxton had moved to Bruges to try his hand at becoming a merchant, and by the 1460s, he had risen to such prominence that he became governor of the English nation of merchant adventurers there. Awesome name for a company, by the way. Sometime shortly after Margaret's wedding with Charles, Caxton had been brought into her court, probably acting as a financial advisor. In 1471, Caxton was sent to Cologne, during which time he witnessed that city's thriving printing industry and was trained in it. At this time, the printing press, with movable type, was still just a relatively new invention, having been developed around 1440 by Johannes Gutenberg in Mainz. Although, some may claim that it was actually invented by a Dutchman, Lawrence Koster, in Harlem, in the late 1430s, but we are going to resist the great temptation to get into the details of that right now. Anyway, back to Caxton. During his time in Bruges, William Caxton had seen firsthand the trade of manuscripts and books for the rich Burgundian and English aristocracy, such as we'd seen with Routes earlier, and was savvy enough to bring his new skills back to Bruges and help set up a printing company. Caxon began translating a French language history of Troy into English, which he showed to Margaret under the pretense that he was finding the work difficult and thinking about giving up. This appeal to Margaret's cultural cultivation, her language skills, and her love of literature proved to be a masterstroke, because after personally helping him with the translation, she then ordered him to finish it. So it was that the recueil of the Histories of Troy was published at the end of 1473 in either Bruges or Ghent. A first edition copy of the book, which today belongs to the Huntington Library in California, shows on the first page an engraving of Caxton at the Burgundian court on bent knee presenting the book to Margaret of York with a monkey bizarrely on the ground between them. How odd. So there you go. The first book ever printed in the English language. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Or Belgium, whatever. At this point, you know, it's all the same thing. In the nine years that followed her arrival in Burgundy, Margaret of York spent only about five months away from Mary. She adopted the Burgundian ducal trait of moving around her territories, followed by a huge retinue of knights, soldiers, and advisors, most preeminent among which was the Duke of Ravenstein, Stepmother and daughter travelled extensively together, and Margaret's training by her mother and Elizabeth Woodville came into effect as each tour they did was carefully planned and organised to coincide with the obligations of the religious calendar and all manner of different observances and celebrations therein. She took Mary on a bunch of pilgrimages, no doubt trying to instil the same sense of respect of virtue with which she had been brought up. As Margaret had been, Mary became an extremely potent political device in the eyes of the man who made decisions for her. Her marriage, as we have covered before, would come endowed with the rule of the Burgundian lands, and Charles readily used her eligibility as it suited him. It must have been taxing for Mary to be a part of such intense diplomatic wranglings without having any power over them at all. Imagine being her. One minute... You are thinking you are going to marry some guy called Ferdinand of Aragon and be trying to apply this knowledge to imagining what your life would entail. Then word would come from your father that actually you are now going to marry Nicholas of Lorraine. Who is that, you would ask? Before that could happen, however, Nicholas of Lorraine was dead and you were being engaged to somebody else entirely. All this time, however, you are spending longer and longer not married and not bearing children, which is what you have been taught from childhood is your biggest purpose in life, whether or not it is what you actually want to do in life. For Mary, at least she had Margaret to help her negotiate through the emotions and imaginings that came attached to all of this, who herself had spent years in a very similar situation. In the end, it was an Austrian called Maximilian, son of the Emperor no less, whose name was carried to the finish line in the negotiations. As we have touched upon before, he had been discussed as a prospect for Mary since as early as 1463, but it was only in 1476 that an agreement was reached for them to tie the knot the following year. Surely though, a part of Mary must have thought, I'll believe it when I see it. During these final years, as Charles's ambitions saw him campaigning far and wide, Margaret and Mary played a more active political role, doing what they could to support Charles from the Low Countries. Whilst he was bogged down at Neuss, it was Margaret who was in Flanders, ensuring that Edward IV had the ships that he needed to get his troops across to Calais from England, and who actually met Edward when he eventually landed there himself, for the planned Anglo-Burgundian invasion of France. You will also remember that Louis XI had taken advantage of Charles's follies in Neuss by launching an invasion into Hanoi and Artois in May 1475. It was Margaret who was busy making sure there were sufficient armies to defend those lands and firing off letters to important people throughout Flanders to get their troops ready to fight. The power brokers in Flanders must have felt somewhat sympathetic towards her, despite the increasingly desperate military situation Charles was finding himself in. Wim Blockmans writes that in 1475, the cities of Flanders agreed to give her a pretty substantial amount of money, though only half of what she had actually requested. Quote, this compliance is to be interpreted as evidence of a distinctly positive attitude towards Margaret, despite the probability that the money went to support the Duke's warfare. End quote. Remember, by this stage, the Flemish had already paid more than six years' worth of aids to Charles in advance and were no longer feeling generous towards him. This was hammered Home in 1476, when the Estates General of the Low Countries refused to give more money to fund Charles's military escapades. It was Margaret and Mary who had been given the unenviable task by Charles to convene the Estates in order to ask for this money. Together with the Lord of Ravenstein, as well as the Bishop of Ternay and the Burgundian Chancellor, Guillaume Huguenet, Margaret and Mary spent that final year doing all they could to try and raise the money that Charles needed to get troops and convince the cities of the Low Countries to help their Duke. Margaret crisscrossed Flanders, Brabant, and Holland, visiting the towns and cities and pleading for more help. By the end of December 1476, Margaret and Mary were in Ghent, beginning to make plans for Mary's wedding to Maximilian. Charles, meanwhile, was camped in the snow outside a city called Nancy. And it is here, where we are going to leave things in this episode. When Charles did eventually die at Nancy, as we covered in the previous episode, Margaret of York found herself in a somewhat similar situation to the one which her mother, Cecily, had faced when her father, Richard of York, had been killed at that skirmish in Wakefield. Both men had died as a result of their ambitious military designs to consolidate their own power, and both women were the ones left behind to pick up the pieces and do their best to protect their children and their family's interests. Margaret would now have the responsibility of guiding Mary through the turmoil of transition from Charles' rule to her own, whilst Burgundy was immediately invaded by France and the citizens of Flanders went into revolt against her. I know that's not that surprising. If the Burgundian state was going to have any chance of surviving the death of Charles the Bold, it was going to depend heavily on whether this English princess was able to impart the lessons she had learned from her home country onto the young Duchess of Burgundy at this moment of grave crisis. And jumping into that muddy mire is what we've got to look forward to. Coming up in the History of the Netherlands. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to History of the Netherlands. Congratulations, listeners, we did it. We made it through 2020. Julian, give me five. No, actually, don't touch me. Elbows. Despite the wild and awful ride we have all been on, we are stoked that we have somehow managed to release 23 new episodes this year for you to enjoy. This has been by far the most challenging year of our lives, but making this podcast has been one of the positive outlets for us, giving us purpose, and we really couldn't do it without you. Well, we could, but then it would just be me and Julian sitting in a small room talking about Dutch history to a wall that has a bunch of pillows leaning up against it, and that would be weird. Although it's been a difficult year in general, this has been by far the best year for us podcasting having had more than 140,000 downloads in 123 different countries, which is absolutely mind-blowing to us. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to the show, recommends us to your friends and families, writes reviews online, just gets in touch with us to tell us you're thinking about us. You're awesome, and we love you all. We must also say an especially large thank you to those of you who have donated to us via PayPal or Patreon or However other way you've found through correspondence with us, in a year that we've lost almost all of our regular income, your donations have, without exaggeration, literally helped us to be able to live. So it is with great affection and warm, fuzzy feelings that we want to pay homage to everybody who belongs to the order of the Golden Patreon Pledge, whether it's by Patreon or PayPal or whatever. To do this, to end the year, we want to induct the following members to our noble charter. Tom Eamesy Eames, that was not a very difficult one, thank you very much Tom, Martha Drogue, thank you so much, been a long time supporter of us and we really appreciate your correspondence and support, we hope you're having a wonderful Christmas, making lots of olibola and we hope that they're not as dry as your name, Frank Coogsy Cougar, thank you very much, very active on our Facebook page which I didn't realise that we still had until today so that's exciting, I'm going to check that out, thank you very much Coogsy. Freak van also known as Edgy Hedgy. The only Freak from the Hedge that I will ever truly love. Thank you very much, Freak. And then finally, Mark DeCole, the coolest cat in Delft. Thank you very much, Mark. To everyone out there, we'll see you all in 2021. Totso dooi! This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.